Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Today my guest is the writer Don Cummings. He has a new memoir out. It's called Bent But Not Broken. It's about his experience with Peroni's disease and also about a lot of other things in his life. Um, it's a really personal, um, moving thought-provoking read, and uh, he's a friend of mine, so I'm really proud of him. Um, Before we get to that, I just want to say that I'm recording this intro in a car because it's the quietest place I could find today, but the rest of the interview is at Don's place, so it won't sound like you're in the, you know, cab of a Prius in a garage. Um, I want to get a plug-in for the Mismatch Game. It's next weekend, the 29th and 30th of March at the LA Gay and Lesbian Center. A lot of fun. It's our 15th anniversary year. We've got some hilarious people. Willem from Drag Race is going to be there on Friday, uh, Jackie Beat, uh, Tom Lank, just all kinds of funny people. And also, the game, You Don't Know My Life, we have a few free games that we want to give away to some people that don't already have it that will do us a little favor. So if you're interested in getting a free game, there is something you have to do to get it, but it's not that much. It won't, it's, it's kind of painless. Um, and uh, if you're interested, shoot us an email at ydkmlgame at gmail.com and say, I heard you talk about the free game on the podcast. What's the deal? And I'll explain it to you. We'll see if we can make it work. All right. um, That's all the plugs for this week. Uh, Enjoy Don Cummings. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Will you consider this neighborhood Hollywood? You know, um, there's not a real name for it. The the realtors call it Hancock Park, but obviously it is because that's where the mansions are. Yeah. Um, and in the original land grant, this was called Hancock Park, but it's not. Okay. No uh, worries. Hollywood starts right here on Melrose. Okay. So I, I call it Hollywood. Hollywood. All right. Melrose Media District. People have there. You go. Call. Yeah. Hey there! I'm coming to you from the Melrose Media District of Los Angeles, the uh, home of my guest today, Don Cummings. We're in your little guest house in the back. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dennis. It's really fun to be here. Um, now, right before we started, you told me that this neighborhood is some kind times called the Melrose Media District. That's so glamorous. It's just ridiculous. I think what happened was they. Uh, I live about forty feet south of Hollywood, right? And uh, so this neighborhood didn't have a name, and right. Highland was just sort of a wasteland. So yeah. They started building lofts and restaurants and different things, and then someone—I don't know—someone probably at some city agency said we have to call it something. Yeah, it needs a name. Yeah, and if you and if you drive up Highland, uh, there actually is a sign that says Melrose Media District. No one calls it that. Right. We and we won't ever call it that again. No, but we're trying to start <laughs> a thing. We're trying to start a thing. Uh, the occasion for the interview today is you just came out with a memoir. I did. It's called Bent But Not Broken. And mm. how long have you been working on the book? When did when did this all? Start? Um, actually, I w- I guess it's been a grand total about. Seven years. I mean, considering how, like writing it, doing other projects, coming back to it, right. and then that crazy period of time trying to get it published, which was its own length within that period. Right. We'll yeah. get into that. Yeah. So tell us what what the book's about. I, I read it. I, I think it's mm-hmm. terrific, and you're such a good writer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. And I learned a lot, of, not just about the the issue that you deal with in it, but also about you and and your husband Adam, who I also uh-huh. know, uh-huh. and uh, it was. Um, it was. It brought up stuff for me as well about my own life, so which we'll get into. Okay. But yeah, how do you describe the book to people? Um, I had. Uh, I came down. Came down with, or contracted, or was born into. Anyway, I had Peroni's disease, which, if, for those who don't know, it's you get scar tissue in your penis right above your erectile tubes, uh, just below the skin, basically, 
and this scar tissue tends to make your erections bend in many different directions for different guys. And I had that. I got that, I got that when I was about 48 years old. And so I had to go to the doctor and I wrote about the experience. And I basically the book is very simply structured from discovery of this disease, getting treatments and how it ended up in the end, which I won't give away right now. Um, but, uh, it, it also became about, uh, the, the deeper issues, the emotional issues of, of dealing with my relationship and my sense of self around this. So that's what the book's about. It's about my Peyronie's disease and, and what happened. And all the stuff that it brings up. But I also yeah. like the way you write about your past and your upbringing and your family mm-hmm. and your relationship yeah. with Adam. It's like this a framework that you write about all of these other things on. Yeah, well, well, it seemed to me that um, what was what naturally happened when I was going through these treatments was I was, you know, thinking back to like when I was younger and I was, you know, a sexual dynamo, and it just those things just naturally came up. So I started writing about them, and then uh, that sort of become a thing. Right. And then I said, well, let's just keep it going throughout. And so actually, you you, you get the story of my of my sexual past um, from pretty much a very early age all the way to the present. So, um, and it's not really lurid. I would you say it's lurid. I mean, I don't know. I mean, no, I don't. I think it's just honest. It's honest, yeah. And that's what I felt like. Like I, I try to explain to people. Like I, I come from this family that is uh, both kind of scientific and and very liberal, and no one's upset about anything to do with the body. Like we never right. have, and nothing inappropriate in my family. I mean, nothing. I mean, my mom occasionally vacuumed in her underwear, but whose mom didn't, right? That's fantastic. That's like not a big deal. I mean, that's. I don't think that's. I don't think I was scarred by that. Um, but, uh, I'm not squeamish about the body, about sex, but it's like normal. Right. Everyone has a sex life or some kind of sex life or, or a little sex. Anyway, everyone has a sex life. Right. And, uh, and I decided like, of course, if something's, if you're feel like you're losing something, you might as well, you know, your brain's just going to naturally think about what you're losing. Right. And that's what came up. And you're somebody that's always kept a journal. I did. So, uh, yeah, February 16th, 1973, my mother was cleaning out the dining room server, this very ugly kind of faux Mediterranean thing with brass knobs. And my father worked for, um, ultimately worked for a Chevrolet dealership, but like the mother, you know, ship was GMA, you know, General Motors. Right. So every year General Motors gave him a desk planner diary. And he never used it. And always ended up in the dining room server. And at the end of the year, my mother would throw it out empty. And she was cleaning it out one day and I was walking by and she said, she pulled it out. She goes, do you want this? And I said, what is it? And she said what it was. And I... And I said, well, okay. And she said, well, well, don't take it unless you're going to use it. She's very tidy. She is a very tidy person, very much still with us. And, um, and I said, okay. And so that began it. So, so I actually, on, on that day, on February 16th, 1973, I started writing down every day what was happening. And they weren't like thrilling entries. Some of them were like, my brother's name is Greg. I said, Greg and I went ice skating today. He fell in. We pulled him out. We had macaroni and cheese for dinner. Yeah, some of them are written in crayon. So right. I, I I kept a journal and I kept a, a strong journal around this and with even more details. When right, this was happening, figuring I would it would turn into something. Right, and at first I thought it would be like a pamphlet. Yeah, I thought I would write something not a pamphlet, but like a, like a forty page uh, short that right. people could you know read. And I said, "This is what you do." Right. And um, had so, you heard of Peroni's disease at all before I, you started looking I, into it? I actually had. You yeah. know, and I had never heard of it. Yeah, I had heard of it because I was a, uh, I was a science major in college. I was a pre- actually a pre medical student, and I was also maybe even a little bit hypochondriacal when I was younger. Um, I, I looked, I looked 
looked it up years ago, or it just came up years ago when I was actually in the in the college in the nineteen eighties. Um, yeah, so I'd heard of it. I knew what it was, and and I knew that when I, this started happening to me, yeah, I was like, fuck, I have Peyronie's disease. Like I, it's like right. it, it wasn't that big of a mystery. It wasn't a mystery to me. I'm right. sure it is to others, but yeah, I, something was wrong. What do we know about Peroni? Did he discover it, or did he have it, or where does it get its name? Oh, a doc. I don't know his first name, but he was a French doctor, um, and he discovered it. Okay, yeah, as are a lot of like diseases are named after the man who discovers it. Now, you say in the book that you got into the doctor earlier than a lot of people do with yes, this. Yes. Probably because you had an awareness of it. Yeah, the doctor said to me that gay people come in sooner than... Gay men come in sooner than straight men because gay men are more uh, identified with their penises. Right. And as I thought, like, oh, that's... So it starts bugging them more sooner. Sooner, yeah. So yeah. I was like, oh, the final, you know, finally an advantage to being gay, you know. I was like, <laughs> fantastic. I, I, you know, I went in sooner. I mean, we had, like, sort of a... Uh, we, we just... We had moved to New York, and my husband was changing jobs, and right. insurance was changing. So I went in, like, maybe even about a month later than I wanted to because of an insurance. Right. Pushing it around. But, yeah, I went in, like, I discovered it, like... Uh, I, I went in by about two months. After I discovered it. How was your insurance throughout the process? My insurance was great once the third one kicked in. When we moved, we, we uh, you know, we live in Los Angeles now, obviously, but we were in New York at the time. We had moved there for a few years uh, for some work stuff. And uh, so we had a, we were in a Cobra situation, left over from my husband's job. Right. Then we were in a, a temp job, right. insurance, and then Adam's job became full-time. You know, so, so that became into the third insurance. So it was that insurance. So actually, I think I actually went on the temp insurance and it switched to the, the, the other insurance. But anyway, I say all that because um, it, it was it was very stressful to right. have or not have insurance. And and uh, but but the good news is is that the insurance did cover everything. It right. really was covered. I mean, this was a, it wasn't like the insurance company was like, we don't, you know, we're not going to deal with dicks. Right, you know, yeah. They, they did it, yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah, so I was very happy with it. And it was, the doctor you went to, it sounded like he was one of the top yes. people for this particular yes. disease. How did you find him? Um, like we do these days on the Google. Right. <laughs> I just started Googling, like, who's the guy? And, uh, you know, it's funny. In the book, I, I don't use his real name. Matter of fact, I don't use anyone's real name except for uh, famous people. Like, right. I, I run into... Meryl Streep, and I run into Hank Azaria, you know, they're mentioned, um, and my husband and I, because obviously I just had to use his name, because it would be right. ridiculous to call him Fred or something, but uh, everyone else is made up, So, and my doctor is too, he's, he's called Dr. Hellman in the book, but in real life, I mean, it's not hard to, he's, his name is Dr. Mulhall, and mm-hmm. uh, he works out of Sloan Kettering in, in Manhattan, he's a very successful urologist, and uh, he, his specialty is Peyronie's disease, and he sees mountains of patients. The other... The other uh, specialist in, in, well, the specialist that people know too is Dr. Mills here in Los Angeles. In right. UCLA. Yeah. Do, do you tell the doctor that you were writing the book about it? You know, I, I, I not in the beginning. I was t- right. taking notes. Within about half of the treatment, I said to him, I said, if I wrote a, if I wrote an article or a book, can I come interview you and stuff? And he, and he said to me, he was like, you know, people slam my work, he said, because, um, in some ways it's anecdotal because it can't be... You, you can't have a control group, right? Because it would be weird to, like, be treating guys, you know, he was trying to do an right. experiment. So he just treats guys, and some get better, some don't. Right. You know, and that's it. But he was like, you know, like most people, you know, everyone has a little bit of vanity in them. So he was, he was, you know, he was like, okay, okay. Right. But the truth is, I, I have sent the book to my to Dr. Mulhall. Um, I haven't heard from him yet. Right. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if he, I mean, he's depicted, I mean, 
my emotional issues with him too. Also, like I didn't know if he, I didn't know if this was going to be just like quack medicine, right? You know? And uh, so, so he comes off as professional, and he's professional, stuff and, and in the end, you know, he he did what he did for me, and and it was, you know, I, I'm pleased, and and uh, so I hope I hope he likes it. Yeah, I love the way you use this story to talk about other things in your life, mm-hmm. um, early sexual experiences, coming mm-hmm. of age, growing up. Um, there was a relationship with Kathy. Uh, that uh, yeah. was a serious um, girlfriend situation. Yeah. Talk to me about Kathy. Yeah, well, Kathy's definitely not her real name, and I won't right. say her real name. Um, Kathy, so I was, I was definitely, a, uh, uh, you know, I was a kind of an academic kid, but my, my big pleasure growing up was music, and, uh, and acting too, but, but music really. And, and uh, Kathy and I were in choir together, in the plays together, and, you know, it was interesting, like, when I was... In junior high, I, I was like the lead in the play. I was Oliver and Oliver, and all the girls had crushes on me, and maybe some of the boys, who knows. But um, and I got to high school, and you know, all the girls went out to the older football players. Right. And I was just like, and I never had a girlfriend, and I had no idea. I, I kind of maybe thought I was gay, but I didn't know. I right. wanted a girlfriend. Right. And the truth is, I, I years later I found out that certain girls had crushes on me, but. I thought no one was interested in me at all. Like, no one. And she had this monster crush on me. I knew all about it. She kind of chased me around a little bit. And um, and I was resistant because the truth is, I, I liked her, but I just didn't feel like... I just didn't feel, like, drawn to her in that way. Right. And, and I don't think... It, and honestly, and, and, and this is... I don't want to, you know, disparage the, amazement, the amazingness of Kathy. I mean, she is an amazing person. Um, but I... Uh, uh, she chased me. It wasn't really just because I was gay that I wasn't into her, because I think I was into other women is what I was trying to say. But um, she chased me. We went to her prom together. She was a year older than me. Yeah. And and then, for whatever reason, it was it was her moxie. Like, she decided, because I said yes, that I would go to the to the prom together. Right. You know, these days, kids go to the prom. It doesn't mean anything. But in those right. days, it kind of meant a little something. And so she decided I was her boyfriend. And for whatever reason, I don't know why... I was being very passive. I just decided that was okay. Yeah, okay. And I didn't... And the truth is, in the beginning, I wasn't that into her. But then I really got into her. Right, because it it lasted after school, didn't it? It it did. It was like, well, so she was a senior. I was a junior. So she... um, Yes, it lasted three out of four years. We broke up for a year. But when I was in college... I was still, I was, she was still my girlfriend. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, the truth is she was an incredible, um, source of strength for me. I was a, I was not, the second two years of college were fine. My first years of college were really hard and she was, she was just completely present. Really like, she was like my family. She was like my backbone. I really needed her. And I, and I always say, I always feel bad because, um, I don't really feel like I used her necessarily, but as I started dealing with figuring out that I was gay and she was still my girlfriend. Like, you know that story. A lot of the, a lot of yeah. people have that story. And I, just, I felt guilty. The truth is I just felt really guilty. I felt, by the end of it, I just felt so guilty and weird and, and, and really ultimately kind of mean. But the sex was good. It was yeah. on and off. It was good. I was, I, was, I was happy to have heterosexual sex. And she was, you know, sexy and she was into it. And we did have a, we had a, we had a perfectly fine and enjoyable uh, sex life. I, I, I know I never made an orgasm, ever. 
<laughs> she pretends that she did, but she didn't, you know. Wow. I, I don't know that I can make a woman orgasm. I mean, maybe these days if I read a manual. There should be a game a game show called Make, make a Woman, make a woman orgasm. orgasm. You know, just time like, to play. It's time to like get on, you know, yeah. get on all fours and start going, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, we've talked about this on the podcast before, the, uh-huh. like gay guys that have those girlfriends or whatever. Yeah. And you know how they have Secretary's Day and uh, Baseball Day? <laughs> I think there should be a day for those women. There should. And we send them a muffin basket. <laughs> I don't know what this day is called yet, uh-huh. but I, I feel like it's yeah. something that could catch yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. But uh, how did Sorry that end? How did it end? Yeah, not, not that well. I mean, she kind of... I don't know how she figured it out, or she she asked me one day if I was bisexual, right? And, and it was basically in response to like I was taking dance classes, you know, right. at college, and I was like, you know, in, in, into that and into choreographing stuff. So it was, you know, obviously a cliche, but you know, a cliche is a cliche for a reason. And um, and then she said to me, "Well, you, you're going to have to figure this out, this bisexual thing, you know." And um, and interestingly, I think she meant like. She's, I think she really meant, like, you better, you better, like, figure out that you would like women more than men. And I think that she presumed if, if, if I picked women, then it would be her. Like, that right. was that easy, you know, that simple. Um, so I, I'll never forget it, because we were standing, we were standing in front of, by total coincidence, her grandparents owned a big, ugly fourplex across the street from my house. Right. And we were standing there smoking cigarettes, and in front of her grandmother's fourplex, and... That, that's when it came up because I was talking about this dance thing and she asked me this question I just looked at her like I, I don't I don't know you know what the answer is going to be but then but then I you know I went back to college one more year and, and, and I, I it was really it went out with a whimper frankly I sent yeah. her a letter she was she, I just said this is you know it's over and and it was yeah yeah um, when do you remember first hearing about AIDS like because I, I came of age like I had heard about AIDS oh. before I had sex. In other words, mm-hmm. it was never not a part of the equation. Yeah, I'm older than you. Um, I was, so, I was in, I graduated college in 1984. Okay. And they started kind of talking about around, you started sort of hearing about in 82, 83-ish? Yeah. Kind of, so I heard like rumors about it on campus, and also because, you know, as I was a science major, you know, we'd hear about people yeah. talking about it. But my biggest memory about it, it was just so terrible, is... Um, do you remember there used to be a diet candy called Roll Aids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember my sister used to rent this silly little beach house out on Long Island, and she had some friends, and she, my sister was in the medical field. And people were making jokes about, you know, what do you call, what do you, yeah, yeah, what do you call a gay guy on roller skates? Yeah. No, no. The, the roll wasn't in the joke because it would have ruined the joke, but what do you call, a, you know, a gay guy on a skateboard? You know, yeah. Roll Aids. And right. it was just like, oh, and everyone laughed, and it was like, so, and I remember like thinking like, God, you know, like, People are, are dying, and, and you're making fun of it, you know. Now, granted, uh, people make fun of things that they're afraid of, so I get right. it, you know. Right. But uh, but my biggest memory of of, uh, of, of first year of my age was Royal AIDS, but that was, a, a, you know, probably a year in from just general chatter about it on campus. And yeah. I, you know, I mean, I was just young enough that I knew about it, so, I mean... Uh, I'm yeah. HIV negative. I mean, I yeah. just, I was just, I was lucky enough to, I mean, I, had I been just a couple of years older, I mean, we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking, you know? Yeah, I remember yeah. going to the grocery store and the, the, all the magazines had Rock Hudson, the Rock Hudson story on it. Mm. I remember that's a memory that I have that's pretty right, vivid right. around that same time. What do you consider losing your virginity? Oh, 
you know, that's funny. I, I, I actually consider it with Kathy when I was 16. Yeah. Because even though I started fooling around with this, this, uh, I, 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 uh, you know, I call him something else in the book, but I started fooling around with this guy in my neighborhood when I was around 12. He was also 12, so it wasn't anything that incorrect. Um, and you know, boys at that age were all, a lot of, a lot of boys at that age were like pulling their pants and doing weird things with their penises because it was, they were getting a little bigger. And, right. You know, and things were happening, hair was growing, and they became these like interesting toys almost. Um, and so my sex with, with this guy down, you know, in my neighborhood, he was really not far away from my house. Um, it was like, honestly, like stabs in the dark. It was oral. It was anal. It was hands. It was, it was, but it, it was never really, it was never really sex like, like you have when you actually get together with someone and you're really having sex to connect. It was just more like weird mutual masturbation, you know, just, it was, it was 12 year old alienated play sex. It right. was very, you know, and I, and I know like so many, you know, men my age, you know, and, and younger, older, whatever, you know, go through this where you, you don't connect up your your emotional life with your sex life because the early years are just like this weird thing you're doing. And you're also kind of pretending it's not happening while it's happening. Right. Because it's like it's shameful or something, you know. So, um, so no, I consider it with Kathy. Um, and then, and after that, all bets are off, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like you grew up in a household where it was okay and it, you weren't like raised to think it was sinful or anything like that. To be gay or to have sex. Sex in general. Sex in general. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean sex not at all. And my, my parents, um, I mean, I first asked my mother when I was eight years old, you know, I, you know, I was one of those kids. I, I love my mom. She's great. And she like put on makeup and I'd sit on a, you know, closed toilet and like talk to her while she's putting her makeup. And I remember kids were talking in school about sex and I was like, like, what is this? You know? And she said, you know, and you know, she told me what it was. Right. And she was very groovy about it, very low key, you know. And, and she mentioned that it was pleasurable, people like it. Uh, but the outcome is a baby, you know, if it all right. goes the way, you know. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, I was, I was such a puritanical child. I was like, but then, I didn't say this to her, but I thought, well, then people are just going to do it for fun. Right. And I thought that was just, because you're in school, I was like such a, you rule know, keeper. Yeah, I was like such a rule keeper. I was just like, right. I'm just going to go have this for fun. It's yeah. so strange. So, yeah. yeah. Um, when I was reading this, I thought to myself, I think this might be the most personal memoir I've ever read. Mm. Not because of what you're talking about in terms of your penis and what's going mm-hmm. on with the disease and stuff. But the way you write about your relationship with Adam, your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very intimate and... Um, brutally honest and I how did he feel about you writing about the relationship like that what did mm-hmm. he think when he read it did he ever go you know what this is the way I saw that evening or whatever like mm-hmm. what was that like you know I, I you know Adam uses that quote from Cat Hunt and Rufio he says you know I loathe mendacity like Adam really likes the truth right so he's he's predisposed to, to liking the truth to appreciating it yeah yeah I mean he he was fine with that um, and he didn't see it differently than yeah, as a he thought it was fair. He thought he it was fair. I mean, right. I mean, he didn't he didn't love the full depiction, you know. Right. Um, but 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 um, he he got he got through it. I mean, I mean, I mean, basically, I feel like, and this happens in the gay community too. Like, like I feel like a lot of gay people are traumatized 
and they're not fully connected with what's really going on with themselves because yeah. they're, they're defended, you know, because because a lot of bullying, mostly because of bullying, you know, I right. think that that it, that it really does a number. And and I was very obsessed almost. I was like, he's just saving my twenties, and it was really it wasn't a great quote, but I'd be like. You know, being gay is like, you just like men more than women, and it's just like liking lasagna more than baked ziti. It's like nothing. And I was like, and I don't know that I necessarily believe that, but I made, trying to live I made myself believe it. I was like, this just can't be a problem. Because I didn't want to have that be a problem. And I and it was a problem. you could see the ramifications of that well, problem well, in the I, way people live their lives. Right. And I, and I was like, definitely had my own trouble with being gay. Right. No question as a teenager. I was really freaked out by it. And then finally, when I finally just, I was around 21, and I was like, forget it. I'm gay. This is ridiculous. I was like, I, I can't be upset about this anymore. This is crazy. Right. So um, so then after that, I was I was like, you know, Adam, I'm going to a long time. We have a, a we have a, a full blown relationship. We're married now, you know, and uh, and it's um, what, what, why shouldn't that just be talked about as directly as possible? And I, I was aware that a lot of gay people don't do that. I think I think I also think a lot of gay men get a bit romanticized. They romanticize stuff. Right. And I think that's a normal reaction to being traumatized. That right. that you're going to romanticize because you really do need to create this, you know, other reality somewhat. And 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 I think it does cause problems. And and I'm definitely look. I'm also someone who has been predisposed, and it's because of my family and because you know my I don't I, I I'm I'm predisposed to being very honest. And I think right. Adam likes it about me. Appreciates it. So well, what, what was really striking is I read this you know book about relationship. And it's very warts and all. And, and also sort of, you talked a lot about how this is how I tend to handle situations. This is how he tends to handle mm-hmm. situations and how those are at odds. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, when I walked in last night, he was beaming with pride for you. Oh, yeah. And I love to see that. So I just, and I, I don't want to over um, sell the, the way you write about the relationship, but there's, it's very granular and intimate mm-hmm. and, and, and really honest. And so I, I love that, that, He's so proud of you around it. it. Well, I mean, I mean, he's you know, I love him so much, and I, and I know he loves me, and, and and we have a great relationship. Look, we've been together now. You know, the, the book we starts at sixteen years. We're been at twenty five years. Right. There, there were, and he will tell you too. We had horrible years in our relationship. Right. And times when you when one or the other was ready to end it. Absolutely. That you write about. It. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and our and our and our problems really were like I, I always, you know, I, I, I've always been cranky about having a normal job and, and I've had plenty of Hollywood jobs most of them around accounting it was so ridiculous and I worked I was a TV actor and stuff but like I, I've always been a very on again off again worker and uh, you know and Adam's much more focused on you know career and money and thank goodness he is um, and it was a bone of contention for a long time you know about that right. my bone of contention with him for a long time is like he really it, like he just is less affectionate than I am it's just that simple, and it's just kind of how his family was structured. Yeah. And those two things were, for each of us, those were the, the, the big trouble. They were both the trouble. Basically, it was like, and it's just as simple as, like, money. Yeah, you don't and make enough money, you're, you're not affectionate to me. It's like that. It was like that basic. Right. It was like sitcom basic. Right. You know, you could, we could have we we written, like, like, so many episodes around those things that just repeat again and again and again, like, you know, in that TV show, Frasier, you know, right. you know, where he's always learning that his vanity's a problem. Right. You know, like, again and again. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? It comes up again and again. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but we, we worked out a lot of that because, well, facts on the ground changed. Yeah. You know, things just changed. Like, money things changed, and he is, he, I, I'm going to let the whole world know this, um, 
he gives me like about a six minute back rub every morning before he goes to work in the bed. When he wakes up, he gets up before me, the alarm rings, and the first thing he does every day, this was the thing we, it's like very, I know it's very compartmentalized, and it's very like planned, but okay, it's not spontaneous, but it happens. And he really likes to do it. He says it makes him feel connected to me, and I get this like, and I love getting back rubs, so I get this like six minute thing. And How long have you been doing that? This has been going on for a long time. This is yeah. at least 12 years. Wow. Yeah, so he's committed. And I'm so happy about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm so really nice. lucky. It's really, really nice. Why six minutes? Oh, I know, but it feels like about six yeah. minutes. It's not time. Yeah. Oh, thank okay. goodness there's no egg timer there. Yeah. But um, it just feels like it's about that long. Right. You know? and, um, and do you do something in return? Uh, no, no, really. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> no, I'm not a morning person. I sort of, I'm sort of getting it sort of through a fog, which I like, you know. Um, and then, uh, but but I'm more, I think I am, you know, I mean, there have been times when, when Adam said to me, you know, well, you don't touch me either. It's like, well, I go, yeah, honey, you know, I actually do, you know. Right. Uh, it's just, it just comes a little bit more natural to me. But also, you know, the kind of the downside too is like, I'm also more, um, you know, like in the early days, I would tickle him and stuff. He'd be like, stop that. Like, what's wrong with you? He didn't like being tickled. And it took me about six months to a year to go, oh, he really hates that. Yeah, I kind of hate that. Yeah, and, was, and I was like, all right. And, and I had a, a brother, 11 months younger, and we roughhoused all the time. We were just like hitting each other. Right. Throwing each other down the stairs. And it was fun. And everyone thought it was a good time. Yeah. And he had, he grew up with three sisters. And he was like, you don't do a shit with me. No. You're out of your mind. No. You want to like go cook with me in the kitchen? Fine. We're right. Not, we're not fighting yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, so. were there other people that you let know that the book was coming out, people in your life, or people maybe you hadn't seen in a while? Who did you feel like you needed to, to tell about it? Well, I started to my parents because I, I wanted them to read the book, and I wanted to make sure that they understood what kind of book it was. And, right. And they're both like, we, we get it. You know, my parents, I think, they're in the book. They're not a lot, but they're in it some, and they come off just fine. And then my parents are wonderful. They're very supportive people. Um, I really only told one person and there's a reason for this because i've gotten into trouble before with this right I, I told one person um the character called midge that's not a real name but in the book i had one little skirmish with her when i was like in my 30s and it, right. and it was my fault i was an idiot i said some really stupid stupid joke about her mother it was so stupid and she got really offended and and she kind of hated me not hated me she was really she was afraid of me yeah and, and then i realized this is ridiculous and then and then i just i i try and years later you know we're and we're actually really close friends she's awesome and I really, uh, I'm so grateful that she, you know, forgave me for my stupid mouth. Um, but no one else I have told because a bunch of years ago I wrote a play. And the play is called Live Workspace. And I wrote completely fictitious characters. But what I did do was, I know a, a good friend of mine, I pretended as if his brother died. And I pretended as if he was really depressed. And I pretended his wife was, and I never say her name right, she's the very, the, the actress from uh, Third Rock from the Sun, very tall, she plays Sally. Kristen Johnson. Kristen Johnson, because I never know if it's Johnson or Johnson, I don't know if it's Kirsten or Kristen, but Kristen right. Johnson is really, that character's based on her, like just a really strong, ballsy woman who can right. just do anything. Matter of fact, I even got the script to her at one point, and she didn't, she didn't read it, but she did get it, and she, but, um, and I had mentioned this to very close friends that that these characters that I was writing about were kind of based on them here, right. but it really was Christian and 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 ultimately found out what the play was about and they got really really insulted, like so insulted. And I hurt their feelings so greatly and it was like such a mistake 
to to say that like if I were to play about you know Dennis Hensley and it was like and you know he whatever make anything up that right so that, it's that like you it. hate you know and it's just like well it's like I based it based on like I based a character based on like how affable and enjoyable you are except like you're a closet something right you know so you're you threw, a cutter you threw a, a like ball in there yeah well no but yeah and and it was it was it was not good and I and I, and I don't feel good about it so I don't tell people and right. they can, and if they figure out it's them. I can just plausibly deny. Yeah. You know what I mean? Who is your favorite nurse? Oh, oh, in, in, in this. Uh, yeah. Regina. In, yeah, 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 yeah. She was amazing. I mean, you know, we didn't hit it off at first because I was really nervous. And um, and she just seemed cavalier. She's a, 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 she's a lesbian and she was, um, I don't know what that means, saying someone's a lesbian in you know, right. these days, but... But um, we we weren't finding points of intersection that made sense, right? And I think she was nervous. I think she was kind of a bit. New, maybe she wasn't new on the job, but she had a bit of that new on the job feel, right? And she, at one point, she even said, "Like, oh, I feel like I'm a perv because she was passing out pornography because you right. had to masturbate some <laughs> in order for them to check on your penis when it was erect." And it just got at my hackles at first. But sometimes, you know how that is with those people, sometimes you, 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 you get into a, a problem with someone and they end up being your best friend because right. that's exactly makes sense. And uh, and then she, once she, I think the doctor told her, once she, once the doctor told her that, like, you know, this Don Cummings is like, he's really upset, he's a bit of a live wire, he... He, uh, he, 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 he takes things hard. Right. And so... There might have been a note on your chart. Yeah, yeah, chart. Like, like, this guy, (laughs) this guy's got a mouth on him, and he's really... An exclamation point. And he's he's nervous, and he's scared. And so you gotta be really gentle with him. And she was. And then we just, you know, and then we just started talking, and she has a wife, and she has a relationship, her, her, her wife has kids, and we just started talking about stuff. Right. Normal life stuff. And we got really, really close, and, um... Yeah, I really, really liked, I really, really liked her. I mean, um, now, there, there's another nurse, there's a male nurse, and he was great, but interestingly, I mean, I think, I mean, he was also, I think he was like a nurse, I think he had, he had a, a, a higher degree than she did right. in the nursing world, you know, like, I, I can't keep it all straight, but but I think he was more the nurse practitioner, maybe been like a, like I was like an ex-sister-in-law who was like a doctorate in nursing, you know, you can get right. a doctorate in nursing, so so he was higher up the chain, and I think he was, a, he was probably... More a more skilled nurse, right? And I really liked him, but I think I like my problem people more because it means there's energy there and there's like some some way that you need to connect. So I ended up connecting with her more. Than I love I did that. With it. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the beginning, you, there's shots involved. There's thing yeah, like that. Yeah. But I felt like you were getting less squeamish throughout the book, like. Things that were a really big deal. Now you're like, okay, I got this. Yeah. Does, does that feel like that's absolutely true, true Dennis? I mean, and I was very proud of you. I was I, like, oh, he's weathering those shots like a champ now, right? Yeah. Well, because I think like most people, like if you know what's coming, yeah, you know, you better. It doesn't. These experiments with rats, like if they shot them with electricity at known intervals, the rats kind of get used to it, and they're like, yeah, right. Shot, shots coming ten, nine, eight, seven. You know, yeah. When, when you give the rats shocks that, like, are random, they're way more upset. That right. They don't know when it's coming, you know? I think that's why some people... I think that is why some people can stay in abusive relationships or bad situations. Like, well, I know, you know, he or she is going to be drunk on Thursday or right. Friday night at 9. I'm going to maybe get one smack across the face, and then we'll get through it in tomorrow's night. I can know it's coming. And right. that's easier to take, you know? I mean, not that... I, we have that around here, thank goodness. You know, right. But, but yeah, I mean, 
people, you know. So anyway, I got I got I got used to going there. I got I got used to knowing what was going to happen. Right, and, and, and things are getting better. So so that so was you're seeing improvement. I was actually looking forward to it. I yeah. know this sounds crazy, but once I got used to it, I was like, let's do this. Let's get my penis better. Let's like let's just come on, guys. You know. Right. And then you'll in the book too. Yeah, I ended up going through two cycles of six treatments. You know, because I had to because. Well, things got worse. That you you know the book right. is all there, but I um, but fine. You know, just keep doing it until let's just keep doing this until it's done. What you was know? your lowest moment where you really felt the most hopeless? Hmm. You know, it's funny. I, there wasn't an incident, but I I there was a moment while we were we were in a rental in Midtown Manhattan, and I was and it was like this one of these places they had just like fixed up, so every apartment was like you know. The white marble thing. It looked like a hotel room. You know, right. there's nothing special about it. And I just remember, and it was early on, and it was... No. Well, it was early on in the second set of treatments. Like, things get worse. Like, things start getting better, and they got really worse. Mm-hmm. And then I was really, really upset. And I remember just looking at this marble white tile. And this is, like, my version of wanting to kill myself. Right. I'm not suicidal. I never would be. But I just had this strong sensation that I wanted to somehow become a part of this tile. And that's kind of, kind of a weird image. Right. But, but I... That tile knew how to live. The tile knew how to live. Like, it was not <laughs> suffering. It was not having any problems. Yeah, pretty good life, right? It was like, it just gets wet sometimes, you know? But, like, otherwise, it's just... I just didn't want to be around anymore. Right. You know? And I, I just didn't want to be around anymore because, because it, at, at some point... At, at one point, my penis got really bad. And yeah. at that point, I was like, well, how can I do this? Like, how can I really... You know, again, I was 48... It was pretty young to sort of, you know, if I was like 78, you know what I mean? Yeah. 48, you know, like, come on, you know. Do you take pictures? I do have pictures. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Was it before people had cameras on their phones? Yeah, I had a Canon, I still have the camera, actually, I have a Canon So you you would have to take it like CVS and develop? Oh, no, 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 they were digital pictures. Digital. Yeah, I connected the computer and loaded up, yeah. Okay, good. We were were in the digital age. Okay, good. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, yeah, I have pictures, and the the, the most telltale picture is the one um, uh, in the early stages when it was, like, bending to the right, and it's it's erect, and it's, like, clearly a fiddlehead fern to the right, up at the top, and it's just like, oh, it's a a nasty-looking picture. And, uh, but, but it, it actually kept changing shape after that. Most of the pictures though, after that I took were of, um, post-treatment. Like, was there a little, like they, they, you know, they, they poke under your skin and sometimes a little blood comes out on your skin. It's not the big, so I had pictures like blood droplets on my penis or, or pictures of it wrapped up in a bandage after the treatment. Right. Um, so yeah, I have those pictures, but I haven't. Shared them with anyone? No, like, no, I, no, no, I know you're not asking them for that. But, but, but was it important to be able to look at? Was that a tool that you used with your doctor or anything like that? Um, no, I started. I, I, what happened was I was really getting freaked out at what my erections looked like. Right. And I, so I just wrote it all down. Yeah. I'm a word guy more than a picture guy anyway. I just wrote it all down and, um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Something else I didn't know about you. You lived in in Paris for a while, right? Well, I mean, it was just a semester. I was, but I, I've been to Paris frequently. Um, but it would have been fun to live there for a semester. I well, yeah, it was. Great. It was. It was. A, it was a, a college thing, you know, junior year. Right. Um, and it was great for me because 
I, I was a biology major and I couldn't go for a year because there was no way I could sort of get my credits correct with the science stuff and it was mostly humanities things. Yeah, so I studied um, art history at the Louvre and we had the Louvre and we had um, our professor stood in front of the paintings in the Grand Gallery and, and we had our lessons there and, and I studied with Jean-Jacques Doulon who is a, uh, he's, he's deceased now, but he was... He was Eugene Ionesco's right-hand man, wow. which led to me having lunch with Ionesco, which Amazing. is crazy, you know. He's a writer. Ionesco, yeah, right. the playwright, yes. Yeah, he wrote Rhinoceros, um, Bald Soprano. Right. Uh, it, one, one, of the, one, of the, one of the premier absurdists, like Beckett, you know. Right. Um, uh, and then you I got studied, to have lunch with him. Yeah, got to lunch with him. Music composition in German I took, too. Yeah, um, because cause Jean-Jacques was, the, was this acting teacher. Right. Who was kind of his, not a bodyguard, it's too strong a word, but kind of his bodyguard. He was like right. sort of um, his right-hand man that, that kept people at bay. Right. And yeah, we, I had lunch with, with Jean-Jacques, a couple other students from the, who were really interested in theater, you know, and then, um, then Ionesco's wife. And they're both really, they're both dead now, but they were both super tiny. They're from Romania originally, and they actually walked to France in the war. Oh my god! It was so horrible. They were just like, "Honey, honey, get on your shoes. We're walking to France." France. So they leave Romania. Romania. They just like walk to France, and they became French nationals. And he's, you know, obviously a French, you know, treasure. I mean, um, were your classes in English? No, everything was in French. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I've taken a ton of French, so I started taking French in seventh grade, and uh, and actually I've kept it up. Like I actually, I know this sounds crazy, but I actually can read. Um, I read novels in French, and I do, and I keep it up and keep it That's going. That's incredible. Yeah, it's fun. Well, it's unusual to do I, that. I envy that. Yeah, it's awesome. It's fun. it's fun. I mean, my 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 comprehension and my speaking actually aren't as great as my reading. Yeah. Yeah, but... but Did you have affairs when you were in France? No. So, so I was... So, that was the... Toward the end. So, I was still with Kathy. Right. And so, we would send a lot of letters back and forth, and I was really struggling because... I have had this bad drug experience. I took too many mushrooms in uh, in sophomore year. Right, you write about it. Yeah, like and I had a, like uh, I had like flashbacks, and I was having anxiety. I was just having, and the anxiety was connected to being gay, and I didn't want to be a doctor, and I was just I was a total mess. And um, so she was still there for me. So no, I didn't have affairs, but what I did do was one one night, and it really was one night. I went to the uh, the Marais, which is near the Georges Pompidou Center, and that's where the gay bars. There still are some there, right? Know? And I just went to the gay bar like one Saturday night. I was like, I'm just going. I just had I had to go. You know, I just had this urge. I just had to go. And I was yeah, I was 20, and I probably looked 19, right? <laughs> you know, and you know, I mean, that old thing. You know, people like young people sexually. Right. So yeah, I was like pawed out like crazy, and I just started like I don't know, like I was in the bar, and I was like. You know, this this stranger in a leather coat, he's like fucking him in the ass in the bar, in the was bathroom. It no, it was in the bathroom, sorry. It was, right. in, the, it was in the bathroom. It was like, okay. I, I didn't like that feeling. I got out, you know, nothing, I, that didn't last very long. And then someone else came after me in the bar, and that was just like making out. And then the bartender wanted me. I was like, I was like, I was like this hunk of young meat. This, and I was so naive, and I was, you can't call it rape because I was absolutely willing in all this, but. But it was like crazy, and and because it was such a strange experience to be like, it'd be almost like like you know you see a poor dog in heat, and 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 all the other dogs are just going after it. It was right. kind of like that, you know. And uh, and I got out of there, and I was like, 
that was horrible, and I'll never do that again, and I'm never going to go near men again, and, and this is never going to happen, and I'm just never going to do this it again. It was traumatizing. Well, no, it, it, was, it was unsettling. Yeah. Because trauma, like, trauma changes you for life. I don't think it changed right. me for life, but it changed me enough to know that, like, that, like, um, I mean, I think what I was really more upset about, frankly, was that I was really turned on by it. Right. And I didn't want that, you know? But and I, but I also didn't want so much. It was a bit right. too, it was too, much, too, too much attention. You know? <laughs> not, not that I hadn't fooled around before, obviously. And right. I, I was already, you know, I'd already, as I said, I started at 12 years old. So, but, um, but I did not have, um, you know, I have a feeling that Jean-Jacques, the, the teacher, you know, I feel like he may have had a little crush on me. Right. But he was a wise teacher in the sense that, you know, he, he wasn't going to mess with a student. And he didn't. And he never right. made him. But I could, I could just see how he talked to him. You know what I mean? Right. I wasn't, I wasn't a fully naive child. You know? Now, I've always known you as a writer, actor, mm-hmm. creative yeah. person. But okay. your education was like biology and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you feel the pull to the arts? Was that always like, this, uh, I'm supposed to be doing this other stuff? Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, I was like, you know, it all began with music. Like, like you know, it's that music-math connection. I was, right. I was one of these kids who was like... And you took that music test, like, should you play an instrument, you know? Right. And I was, like, really advanced in music and really advanced in math. Like, you know, in years I had math. And it was, like, this really weird brain that just did that. So it naturally led toward then science. And I love science. I loved right. it. I didn't have any friends as a kid. And I, so I loved nature. I loved frogs and crayfish and streams, anything natural I was drawn to. Right. Because I was a bookish kid. And, and the other, I grew up in a neighborhood that was kind of, I don't know, the kids were rough, you know. And, and, and I didn't have friends. So I loved, I really related to nature. So I just, I, it was natural for me to love biology, frankly. Right. And, uh, and I did, you know, like I, I got, a, I, you know, New York State has these regents exams. I got a hundred on the New York State physics regents. So I was just naturally good at science. But I always, always sang. I'm a singer. You know, so I was always a singer. And then the singing is what naturally led toward acting. Because you ended up in the musicals. I, right. I actually didn't, when I was a little kid, I didn't. I mean, I'm not a great... I can act. I get the job done. I can do lots of different characters. I did go to acting school. Um, but um, I think in my soul of souls, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a musician, you know? And, right. uh, um, but that led to... The music led to these other things, you know? But what was fun about acting was I, I really needed the freedom to be as emotional as possible, as freely as possible... And I think as publicly as possible because I, I was, I was, um, I needed that release. I, I was right. pent up, you know. So yeah, so I was always. And acting gave it. you that chance. I did, but the deal is, is that I didn't. I mean, I really, and, and maybe this is, it, it's funny. Like I, I went to Tufts University, and the reason, one of the reasons I went there, and it's like very uh, superficial. It was, it was pretty. I know yeah. that sounds crazy, but it was like it was more like I chose to go to my college because I liked how it looked. Right. Which is just very superficial, but and it's a good, you know, it's a good college, and and I and I really love being there. Um, but I was very torn. I did actually didn't want to go to like conservatory, or I, I wanted I wanted a liberal arts education. Yeah, I, mean, I wanted it. I wanted to learn stuff. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to have that. You know, I'm from the East Coast. I wanted to have that typical like go to a pretty place, read books, learn things, right. be with like, people, and wear nice sweaters. And it was that silly, but you know. When you're 17, life is about that silly, right? You know what I mean. So, but then, I, but then it was rough because by by freshman year, 
I was a mess. I, like, like, I was gay. I didn't want to be a science major. I wanted to do music and act and be out there in the world. And I, and I was, I didn't know what to do. So what I did was I did both. I just plowed through college. You know, I was young. I had a, a lot of energy and I plowed through doing both. And it was nuts. It was just so much effort was made. And, um, and I did, I applied to medical school and I applied to acting school and I, I was waitlisted at two medical schools, which if I had made a fuss, I could have gotten in, you know, but, right. and then I got into, um, the neighborhood playhouse in New York. I went there for two years and I was waitlisted at, I think, Temple and University of Washington for their MFA programs in acting. And anyway, I, I was happy to go to New York. So you were right. applying for both things and it seemed like the acting doors opened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think when I was, that's why Paris was great. When I was in Paris and I was doing, cause I was also acting and crazily enough, I was acting in French cause that's how this class was. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And there was like a comp, so there was a competition. Now granted it was only like for the other people who were in the class. Right. But Jean-Jacques brought in all these like local Paris theater professionals and there was like, and like one man was going to win the prize and one woman and I won the prize. That's and awesome. I was like, and that was the thing that made me feel like, well, let me do this. Let me, and I really wanted to do it so badly. Yeah. Right? That's just where the, the arrows were pointing. Yeah. So when I, so by senior year, I came back to, to Tufts and I, even though I, I, I rolled out and finished applying to medical school, I, I knew I wasn't going to go. I knew I was yeah. going to go and be a creative person, and I was I was going to be a big old gay creative person. Like that was my you know need and desire, and that's when I wrote my first play too. I wrote it yeah. senior year. Yeah, because I always knew know you was a playwright, and you yeah. wrote that senior year in, in college. What was it about? Um, <laughs> it was very much about. Uh, uh, well, okay, so it's basically about killing my mother because right. <laughs> I mean, sorry, mom, but it's because like. She, you know, my mom was a very strong force and she didn't want me to go to an expensive college and just sort of come out with like this, some, you know, drama degree and then what? And then I go wait tables, which is and what happened anyway, but, um, when I went to the neighborhood playhouse, but the play was, again, Ian Esco, it was an absolute absurdist play. The first act is about a daughter who wants to go to, who wants to go to dancing school. Right. And her mother actually is a famous violinist. And a very, like, a the, the strong matriarch, and there was just not room enough in the house for the daughter to become a dancer if the mother's this violinist. And right. uh, so, basically, the father of the family couldn't stand any longer how the mother was treating the daughter. So the father takes her out in the car and purposely kills them both. He, he does basically a murder-suicide. Wow. So I was basically killing my mother to get her out of the way so I could go, you know. And then in Act 2, it's just a dreamscape. It's really bad. Act 2 is terrible. Act 1 is kind of fun. A lot of funny dark jokes. Act two, it's like the the, the 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 daughter and her younger brother who is uh, has some mental problems, like you know, uh, slow. I'd say you know sure. whatever you call it now, and um, and they're like in a dreamscape, meeting like clowns and tigers, and who are like saying big philosophical things. You know, I was young, big philosophical things. Then I was kind of jamming it all in there, um, but the first act was funny. It was good. I, it's funny. It's you know. It's the original thing. It's right here in my garage in a box, you know, and, wow, uh, yeah, in the, in that original crazy, how you right. printed out things in those days and Love it. handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. So. When I met you, you had just done a show here in LA called a good, a good smoke. Yeah. 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 And you were going to New York with it. And you had sort of this odyssey with that play. Mm-hmm, you had a mm-hmm. reading where Meryl Streep read mm-hmm. one of the parts. What was yeah. that like? Wow. Well, it was quite amazing. I mean, so I wrote this play, 
And then, you know, we both know Barbara Deutsch, right? Yeah. So she was helping me. I had you a were little, the one that referred me to yes, her. Yes, yeah. Changed my she, life. She's this great, great life, you know, uh, career coach. And, um, and and now a very good friend. I mean, she's a wonderful person. Um, I had this list of things I'm going to do. Like, you finish this book. It was a different book, not this yeah. one. Another book that never got published. Finish this book. Do this. Write this new thing. And the very bottom was A Good Smoke, which was done. And there were these, these two guys, August and T.L., uh, August Viverito and T.L. Coleman, they had started their own theater company called The Production Company. And they had asked me if I had a play. They were looking for plays. Right. And at the very bottom of this list, it was like, oh, T.L. and August, you know, asked me about A Good Smoke. I maybe I'll send them. I don't care. I, I actually was the least thing I was interested right. in. Right. So the, the play existed. It already, I finished yeah. writing it. Um, we had a reading at my old theater company, West Coast Ensemble, that had closed. And I was like, yeah, I'll send it to them. And, uh, and then what happened was... I know Henry Wolf. His, he's Henry Gummer, who's Merrill's son. Right. And Henry had done a reading of another play of mine called The Fat of the Land, The Fat of the Land, um, at Ensemble Studio Theater in New York. And I knew him. And he, by chance, had just moved here to L.A. at the time when this was going up. This was 2008, actually. So it was like 11 years ago now. Um, and he, um, I, I asked him if he would be in the play. And, uh, and I was like, I was, I was kind of, a, I made him audition, but I thought it was good to have him audition because, right. you know, why not? You know, you, and need, he, you need to be sure. I mean, sure. And he was amazing. I mean, he was yeah. by far the most prepared. He was the most amazing actor and he was amazing in the play. He was so good. And then his mom came. Then Merle Sue came. Like yeah. mom came to see her son in the play. And then she loved the play. And then he kept saying, um, my mom, Henry's got a great voice. I won't imitate it perfectly. But he's like, Don, my mom really likes your play. Yeah. You know, and Henry's a musician. He's got a great voice. He's a great singing voice, and he's a great composer. Um, I was like, well, Henry, you know, um, well, then, you know, she should do it. Because it's a part of the mother. It's yeah. like, it's again, it's, it's, it's another play with me and my mom, you know. So I guess I have two plays that are about me and my mom. And, uh, and my mom has had some trouble with... Um, Oh, she's had some illnesses, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and it's, it's a big, it's a big family kind of funny farce, not, not farce, but a, but a, a funny play, but it, but it's got a lot of emotional truth to it. So eventually what happened is, um, Meryl Streep sent CAA, she sent, um, agents from there and then they became my agent and then CAA was like, you know how agents are. And, and, um, my agent in New York, the, my theatrical agent, he said, we're going to fast track this to production, you know, as they as say, a film or as a play. As a play. And so I'm like, great. And so he did his due diligence and he sent to every theater and I had meetings and stuff and like no one really wanted it. He said, well, we have to do a reading. And so I asked Henry, I said, well, will you do this with your mom as a reading? At the, and, and he said, I'll ask her. And he did. And she said, yes. And it was quite amazing to have, you know, Meryl Streep say yes, you know. And, and, but, you know, I also don't, I, but I also want to say like, it's also quite amazing that Henry did it. And, Quite amazing that then Grace Gummer joined, too, as the sister, so it was a family affair thing. And we did it at the public theater. The public kind of strongly courted us to do it there, because, you know, Meryl Streep has a long history with the public theater. And, um, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was quite something. Um, what was it like when she showed up in the theater? Was it just a small, like... Hollywood theater, or were you in No, the no, house? it was in New York. It was the public theater in New York. Oh, no, I meant the first time oh, she first came to see him. Oh, you know, it was a very strange I'm night. worried about, is she going to find parking? Is it, you know, like these one of these divey L.A. theaters? Well, you know what she did? It was, it was, it was in a, a small, um, it was in a small theater in a, in a strip mall in the valley. Yeah. So, and there was parking there. And okay, she yeah. found parking. But 
I don't. I know that she didn't. I know for a fact that she didn't park there because she wanted freedom to come and go without being bothered. Right. And I also knew that um, Henry said she was going to come, but but we weren't going to know when she was going to come because we didn't want a load of people there. Right. So um, so she just came on a random night, and I got the yeah. phone call. And the strange thing was, was that it was the same day my former dog got um, diagnosed with cancer. Oh my god! So Louise is her name, my dog, and like it was so sad. It was like terminal cancer. My dog was dying, and and that was. The, then we get a phone call from TL, you know, or August at the theater, the production company. They go, Meryl's coming tonight, and I was like, uh, I can't. I'm not going. I just. I'm not going to go to the theater. My dog. I was too upset. And Adam, my husband, was like, get in the get in the fucking car. Yeah. And I'm like, like go, go meet her, go do this, you know. And, and of course, it was the right thing to do, and I did. But, um, so she was fine at, at the small theater. And then what she did smartly and interesting to watch was like, as soon as the play was over, she disappeared as fat, as quickly as possible. So no one hound her. And then, and then she came back like 10 minutes later after the audience had gone. Cause she did want to meet the cast right. and talk to everyone. And she was super gracious and just, you know, just wonderful. And you know, it's funny, like. Uh, you know, everyone loves Meryl Streep, of course, because she's Meryl Streep and she's so talented and, and everything. Um, but for whatever reason, and I don't know how I did this, I just decided that if I, if I ever met her or dealt with her, I was just not going to be a blubbering, you know, right. blithering idiot. And I wasn't. So I was I was kind of proud. Right. <laughs> I was proud that I didn't, you know. You didn't lose your shit. No, I didn't lose my shit. And, and she was super gracious and... Um, yeah, so... And then at the public theater when she showed up, when we did the, the day that the... Um, when, we, when we did the reading there, and it was, it was... I mean, every producer in New York, every theater producer in New York was there. Um, Henry had a music gig the night before. Right. And I think they all were, like, drinking and stuff. So, so they come in, and they were a little late, and, and Meryl's like, I need some coffee. You know what I mean? Did you so, guys have any rehearsal? or We reading? rehearsed. We rehearsed that... Um, that afternoon. That after that, that well, it was a, yeah, it was that it was like no more. It was interestingly, it's kind of a long day. Like I think at ten or eleven in the morning we started, took a little right. break, then we rehearsed some more in the afternoon, and then it was a full day. And she volunteered her time, and they all did. All the actors volunteered their time. It was really quite something. What was that night like? Did you just feel like, oh, this is the beginning of? Well, I thought, yeah. I mean, you know, I worked. I worked really close with, with my friend Kevin Spiritus. He he helped me produce the reading. Right. I mean, I was I was so inundated with humanity, right? And all these important people, you know, that that I I was a slight. I guess I was a little out of my body, you know. And it wasn't just only because Meryl Streep and her family and everyone was up there, you know, doing what they were doing. Um, it was because like I had to interact with so many people. You know, there were hundreds of people there, and, and, and you know, so um, I was excited. I thought, yeah, I thought this play was going to go to Broadway, and it was it was optioned. It was optioned by um, Eric Falkenstein and Alan Marks and Barbara Marks, and this was heading to Broadway, you know, and we did some, they helped me with some rewrites. We had some more readings. We worked uh, at primary stages to do some more rewrites and readings. Uh, I mean... So many, I mean, so many things happened. And then over a three-year period, it just died. You know, um, 
Henry and Meryl and Grace, whoever's going to do they they kind of didn't want to do it as a family because they were afraid it would be a media circus to do a right. live, you know, theater, Broadway thing. So we went after other people, and it just kind of, it was interesting. We'd, we'd get close, and I think, I mean, part of, the, part of the issue with the play, and I love this play, and it still has not been done on Broadway, and it still has not had a proper New York production or, or a proper regional production, um, the, the mother in the play has addiction issues. And I wrote the play even, you know, even before August Osage County came out. Right. So some of the people are like, well, this is just similar. And it really is nothing like August Osage County as far as construction, what the problem is, what the conflict is. But there's a character that's similar to, you know, the mother in August Osage County. So... So that was kind of what people were balking about, you know. Right. So it, whatever. It, it, but, but it's you know what? It's time. It's it's, it's time really, to bring it back. Bring it back, man! It needs to I, happen. I, I'm sad that I never got to see it. I met you right right around that right time, on, right yeah, after. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you deal with the, the disappointment of that, or, or did it was it sort of a gradual thing, or did it ever sort of land on you? Okay, so so this the disappointment of that was happening at the same time as my penis was going through this problem. Right. So. I was having, you know, so we went to New York purposefully for my playwriting career. Right. So we get there, and then within a year, the play is like, you know, floundering, foundering, you know, having trouble. Right. My penis is like falling apart. And so, no, I didn't deal with disappointment well. I I ended up, um, I'm not really depressive, so I don't think I was depressed. I think I was actively... You know, they say, I don't know if it's true, they say, you know, depression is, you know, anger turned inward. Right. I think I was actively miserable. <laughs> I think I was, I was like actively hating everything, you know? So that's how I responded to it. I was, I was angry that we, we up, you know, we uprooted ourselves, went to New York and this wasn't working out. I was, I was, I was sad and mourning my perfect penis that was now becoming something else. Right. So the con it was it was too much. Frankly it was too much. And I didn't and so yeah, so I went I went back to, you know, to a shrine. I had to. Wow. I, I actually had to, you know. And yeah. and that, that was great and that helped and that helped. And I've always you know, I've always been one like, you know, when you hit a wall, just find find a good psychotherapist and have a seat. Yeah. And just get, get talking. <laughs> Did because, you? Yeah, dig in. Dig. I mean, I, yeah. I, don't, I haven't seen it. Yeah. I, mean, I haven't gone to a, a therapist in a while, but I mean, but at that time it was really crucial. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that the book brought up for me was um, you, you were somebody that got a lot of enjoyment out of your penis, mm-hmm. and you, sex was something that made you feel good about yourself. Mm-hmm. And. I haven't had that kind of experience very much in my life. Like, it was... Okay. I, I've had it sort of disappointing in that way. A sex life. Uh, in, a, in a way. And... Um, and so it was interesting to contrast the way... Because you were so frank about describing mm-hmm. um, your experience and also how they made you feel and what you were... You felt like you might be losing... Mm-hmm. Um, so it just brought up stuff for me in, in that way, but something that sex was something that that you could it, it made you feel you felt like you were good at it. It gave you confidence. Mm-hmm. It made you feel good about yourself, apart yeah, from just it enjoying it. Yeah, it did. And I have to say, I, I you know I was never like a sexual dynamo. You know, and right. I, you know some people are hung out in size. I have it's in the book. You know, I have a six inch average penis, kind of thick, but it's totally nice. Um, but like. I, I, in, 
I enjoyed, I enjoyed touching and being touched. I just enjoyed that feeling. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I really, yeah, I really like sex. I just really do, you know? And I envied it as I was reading it because it hasn't been my experience. About sex. Yes. Uh, and in a general way. Interesting. From the beginning. From, so even when you were young. Yeah. So even when like everything is just like I'm young, I'm, I'm young, yeah. Even okay. then, it was if a sense that something I was supposed to feel better than it did. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like I never lost myself in it, mm-hmm. and I see people that do and have. I've seen it happen in front of my face, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And I uh, and it's been an ongoing thing. And I've done some stuff to try to help myself around it and stuff. Interesting. But, um, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I don't, you know, everyone's so different. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, I obviously have no idea why that is for you, you know, um, but like in my gerbil brain or whatever, sure. like that's just how I'm constructed for whatever reason. Like it's like, but I also, interestingly, I definitely used it as an escape too. Like, like I used it and I used it as a reward. Like, you know, some people really into, you know, chocolate cake or whatever. Right. I definitely, like, when I was in my 20s, like, I remember, oh, I remember, like, going to an open cattle call for Les Mis, looking for Byron-esque young men to be right. on the play. And I was like, I'm Byron-esque, you know, yeah. I, I had hair, you know. Right. So, and, you know, and I, I look European and Byron-esque. So I go, and I was like, they just, it was a horrible thing. I go, you, you, not you, not you, not you. And I got, you know, typed out, and, they, you know, I wasn't Byron-esque. So I left, and I remember I was in Madison Square Park, in, uh, which is, like, down in the 20s, um, in, in New York and I just sat on like a bench and I was like crying you know and, and I had like lesser versions of that with right. being rejected nonstop, being created person sure. rejected all the time but what I often would do after a big reject is like well let's go fuck <laughs> right that's how I did it it's like you know what let's just go and you know what or it's mine to be let's go to Chevy's I mean it's the same like everyone's doing it's like let's just like go ahead and I say eat it all up you know and it's just but you could count on it in that way you can count on it to function and to... Uh, yeah, yeah, for whatever reason. No, I, that's great. I get yeah, that. And, 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 and I was like back in the you know, was back in the day and like Central, you can't do it now, thank goodness. You know, back in the day, like, you could just like go into Central Park into the Ramble. You know, there's always someone there who'll have sex with you or you could just... Yeah. You could always find, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember in the West Village back in the day, so there were, you know, it's pay phones. Right. You could walk down the street and the phone would ring. And then you pick it up, and some guy, and and some guy's like up in a window looking at you, and he's like, "You want to come up and have sex?" I'd be like, "Uh, "Where are you?" You know, like, uh, "Okay, I'm right there." That's amazing. (laughs) So you walk down the street, and the phone, and the payphone would ring. Ring, and And you would know what you would you would pick it up, kind of knowing or not. No, no, I. No, the truth is, the first time that happened, I didn't know that that, right. that was. You know, and then I found out for you later. Pick up the phone. Well, I was well, I was curious. Like, why is this phone ringing? I was like, right. is this like an international spy? Right. You know, yeah, like, yeah, what's yeah. going on? And uh, and and the truth is, and it's funny because like so many bad things could have happened to me. Right? I could have right. been murdered. I could have yeah contracted all kinds of diseases and everything could happen to me. But I was always safe. I really was. I mean, safe in the sense that I was sexually safe in my right. practices. Uh, probably not so safe in what I was doing, but. Whatever, you know, um, but that guy, I couldn't tell you many years what his name is, but, um, 
he was really hot, and the truth is, it was some of the best sex I ever had. I remember I went back and saw him a couple more times. I actually we exchanged numbers, and I actually saw him a couple more times. Of course, the whole time, no, of course, he's like ringing that phone for anyone. Right. You know, he's like he's like dial a date. You know, that's <laughs> the hilarious. funniest thing. Yeah. So, so could you look up in the window and see him? Um, my yeah, my memory is I couldn't see him, but my but I could see what window it was. He told right. me what it was, but I couldn't see him. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I remember, I remember we had a, he had a workout bench in his uh, in his apartment. That's all you need to know. So it's so funny, but and uh, and he was very. I mean, and the truth is, like, I, I don't I don't know if you've experienced this, but like, right, like gay men, like I'm sorry, but like everyone's a bottom. I, like I, it just seems to me like everyone's a bottom. You know what I mean? And <laughs> and like and it's like they're all over the place. There's just bottoms everywhere, and 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 so like in and in my major relationships. For the most part, I'd been the top, and I was just like, "All right, whatever," you know. And um, and this guy was a full blown top. He was like, he was like, he's built, right? He had a he had a quite yeah. great equipment down below, and he just like really took care of me in that way. And I was just like, "Wow, I, I'm 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 I really enjoyed it." Yeah, yeah I, I like sex. I do. I'm happy for you. Yeah, I yeah. feel like the odd man out a lot of times. That's um, but what I think I bring this up because I think when people are honest about stuff that I think everyone has stuff around it mm-hmm. and when you're this open about something that's mm-hmm. that personal mm-hmm. I think it gives other people uh, a, l- a little bit of comfort in that whatever their thing is whatever it is around that area it's yeah. it's okay or they maybe have permission to be open about it or something like that yeah I mean I mean I think like like, like I think not not so much these days but I think I was a super shy child and I would right. I would describe myself as an adult as a half and a half eight like right or even really more three quarters and a quarter like I like to spend a lot of time alone I'm a writer right you, you yeah. have to like being alone you know but I really do love intense interaction with people who I love right. who I like you know but I do have this slight paranoia left over from my childhood from like not having any friends I pretty much presume and this is my thing like people just aren't going to like me they're just right. not going to like it's just the fact remains I can go into any room at any moment and I'm not going to be liked. Mm. And then the truth is, when I go on conferences and stuff, and I go to writers' conferences, so you're dealing right. with a bunch of introverts, and I'm less introverted. Right. Then the truth is, I go and I end up being very popular. Everyone enjoys me. And I have a really good right. time. So I have a lot of evidence proving that my thought is wrong. Right. But um, now, granted, and I don't think that is as complicated a thing as sex. Sex right. has more things on it. But but I do have a go-to place that I, I, I always envy people. Who can really walk into a room? Not that they assume everyone's going to like them. I love that they can walk into a room and just presume that like it's neutral, <laughs> like right. that it is not an, right. you know, an aggressive you know space for them. You yeah. Know? So I, I really uh, that's not how you feel in the world. N- no, now it's changed a lot. Right. Also, you know what? I'm older and I just don't care right. as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't care. You don't like me, what? Yeah. I, whatever. And, and I have a lot of, you know, life has proven that, right. like, that I was wrong. But but there is a twinge that right. still can come up. That I get a little nervous. I'm like, oh, people, and, and oh, no, and right. what's this going to be like? And and, and, and and also, too, you know, the, it's interesting, too, about that stuff. Like, I always like to look at the flip side of that. Like... Well, maybe I don't like people that much. I think of that too. Like, well, maybe, maybe it's me. Right. Like maybe I, maybe people are a little bit like repelled maybe by I'm me. In I'm bringing in like a repellent energy, and people right. are like, "This guy's a dick." Right. You know what I mean? So I'm like, so so I so I also do that too. I always try to go in like going like, 
just stay open. Right. And listen, right? Like Barbara Deutsch said, you know, be interested, not interesting, you know. Just right. listen to people. Because, right. no, granted, when a podcast, so, you know. Part of it is kind something. of, you know, you're yeah, kind yeah. of like, by law, forced to listen to me. Or, right. But I'm saying this, like, but like, like when you said your thing about, you know, your sex, like, I was like, well, what I really want to do now is like, completely keep quiet and just hear all about yourself. Right. Right? That's all I want to know is all about Right. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's just this idea that I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is a person that yeah. can get into a situation like that and be reasonably confident that it's going to go okay. That, mm-hmm. that he will be satisfied, that the other person will be satisfied, that he might even have fun. And that's something that I hasn't always been part of my life. Oh, yeah, but, you know, you're, you're, it's a batting average, too. I mean, I've had horribly bad sex. Right. I, I've, I've, I've walked with someone and... and I've had sex with people who just like completely reject me or just end it or it's bad or or I I was barely erect or I've had tons of bad sex, but but I but I think that's part of it. Right. You no, know, it's like and Adam and I, you know and Adam. I mean, I would say Adam and I. I think we have. I think we're pretty great batting average. I think we're like I think we're at about eighty percent good. Yeah. But eighty percent of the time it's great, and sometimes it's like, eh, right? Eh, it was mine. Yeah. It was. It was. It was like. Right. <laughs> you're just sort of. You went through it. You're tired. I don't know. You drank too much last night. Whatever. It's right. just like, yeah. So, but but I'm, but I think that's for whatever reason. I think that's okay. I think it's okay to have bad sex. I think I always say people who, you know, dating and stuff too. It's okay to go on bad right. dates. It's okay if it kind of sucks because in a way it's kind of, in a way it's kind of funny. Right. Because like it's like well, and plus who's anyone. What hubris would it be to think like you're gonna, you or anyone's gonna be like great at sex all the time, right? Or that, or like, or like a date's always gonna be good, or even like, I mean, I mean, the world isn't set up for any of us, right? Right, a lot of random shit going on, right? <laughs> like, well, some of it's just not gonna be good, right? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I dated somebody for a while that I was so into, uh-huh. and he said it to me at one point. He goes, "You make friends easily, and I make lovers easily," mm-hmm. and it was true, right? But it felt like an insult. I'm like, what are you saying? I'm fat? Like, <laughs> but it bothered me because I feel like I get to the friend zone a lot with people that I'm even attracted to because I'm good at that. I know mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I can't project the other with a, with the sense of, it feels a bit like a fraud. Unless I'm dancing. Like, I'm sexy when I'm dancing. And then I've dated guys that are like, what happened to that guy? And I was like, well... <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, always, I don't know. <laughs> well, my, my, my only my only advice in this is like one of the things that always worked for me was was that horrible thing. What you do is you you ignore someone a little bit. That's right. that's what I've done. It's like back in, I don't obviously have to do it anymore. I love so that. Just sort of ignore them some and give give them the space. Yeah. To color you in. Mm. Because then they're 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 starting to build a story around you, right? And then they kind of want, and people are naturally drawn. They want to. Well, what's the next part of the story? Yeah. So so it's not like be mean to them. No. But a little bit of ignoring someone, you know. I mean, I don't look. I don't know how that works. Right. This is something you're, you've observed. But I don't know how that works when you're over thirty-five or forty. No, yeah. I don't know how that goes. Yeah. Certainly, when, when like when I was younger and I was attractive in a in a good way. That worked because I could get a little something because of what I look like, basically. Yeah. Now, I, I wouldn't know what the support What the rules are. be hilarious. Well, no, I mean, it'd be kind of hilarious. I mean, I think now it would just be, let's see, if I go away on a convention, I'm just trying to flirt or something, you know, not looking right. like, just trying to flirt, just trying to get a little attention. You know, yeah, it, it, it completely doesn't work. Yeah. But I do know in general, if I, 
if I don't over, because I'm a yapper, if I don't yeah. over talk, and I kind of pull back. It, it, I mean, that, that yeah. notion that you have of letting them color it in a little bit, that's, yeah. I think that resonates. I feel like that's true. Mm-hmm. All right, you picked some questions from the observation deck. Oh, I did. Okay. Okay, when, where were you when it struck midnight at Y2K? Uh, okay, so we, I was in New York. At, we were at our friend Chrissy's house, and she had her, and it was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and she had a friend, and we were visiting. We were, we were still living at the time. We were visiting. And she had a friend around the corner, an old a chum from school or from grade school or something. And so the idea was was that Chrissy was having her own party with about eleven of us really close friends, right. and this other one was having a party. And so we were going to go over to the other woman's house and watch the fireworks from her roof. So it gets to be about twenty to midnight, and we we can go around the corner. We go to this person, and we get to this apartment, and it's like the opposite of celebration. There are two people sitting on a on a futon thing, looking at a photo. <laughs> like you album. feel like you've got the wrong. You have no idea what's going. On. There's like something sad in the corner. There's like no music. Like it is like a funeral, and like Chrissy's like, and we're looking at us like, and we're all you know, and You're my friend, party. we're all like, yeah, you know, and it's like, and so we obviously were being intrusive and annoying to this dirge of a party they were having, and so Chrissy said, Jerry, well, well, should we, should we? not be here like like wasn't it okay were we were, that we should be here and the host of that part was like no Chrissy it's not okay like apparently there was a miscommunication between Chrissy and this other person and they had a fight in the spot and we were all just like we're leaving so we left so so basically at Y2K we were we were on the streets of the Upper West Side of Manhattan partyless abandoned and thrown out and that's where we were <laughs> we, when it struck midnight right, and then and then I think I, we may have gotten back into Chrissy's apartment like I think we got back in like two minutes before yeah and then we had champagne and then we just like right. got you know tanked and we just made fun of this other party yeah and, and, and Chrissy stopped being friends with that woman they never talked to each other again. yeah so <laughs> alright a cosmetics company is going to create a fragrance inspired by you what is it called brine B R I N E. Yes. Isn't that with like a turkey juice? It's like turkey juice. It's salty because I don't quite smell it anymore. But Adam, in the you know, everyone has their own certain smell, and Adam was always like, you know, it's a little bit of musk because everyone has a little musk in the yeah. It was always kind of like you just smell kind of briny. It's kind of salty and briny. So it's brine. Brine for the man <laughs> for the man at the beach. <laughs> right. I love it. What's a movie that you walked out of? The English Patient. Yeah, now, I, all I could think about in that movie is my contact lenses because the, the sand. Dry. No, uh, because that movie's so sandy, uh, and I'm just thinking. I that's I just was like I wouldn't have lasted two seconds in that movie. No, we're out in Santa Monica, and like, and I forget who's the actress with the red. She stands. She stood up in the who's the Julia Binoche? Yeah, or no, it's She stood up in the bathtub, and we see her red bush, and I, and I just the movie was so boring, and I I stood up and I we have a bunch of friends, and I just said I don't have to take this anymore. <laughs> I walk up the aisle, and I'm walking, I was around, you're at the cinema, yeah. and I'm walking up the aisle, and I'm seeing all these husbands, their wives, and the wives are kind of trying to be interested, and the you husbands, see them trying. They're all, and the husbands are all either sleeping, or they're just like, have looks of, like a rictus of horror on Miserable their, as yeah, well. I was just like, I was like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm making the right choice yeah, here, yeah. and I never, I never saw it after, you never I looked like, back. no way. Yeah. yeah. Who's the most famous or memorable person you've been in an elevator with? Alice and Janney. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Allergy shots. And she was going to the doctor and I said to her, 
And this was long after uh, the ice storm had already, you know, been in theaters. And I and I loved her with the key exchange party. Yeah, she was so great. Amazing. And of course, she's already been on lots of much more high profile things since then. And I said to her, I was like, she really loved you in the ice storm. And she was like, yeah, well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> it's like, oh, sorry, I'm not fully caught up. But I, it was back in the day when we weren't all watching television as much. And right. she was doing TV shows. She was shows. on the West Wing. Yeah, probably. yeah, I wasn't watching, I didn't watch that. Yeah, she yeah. was on the West Wing, yeah. yeah. She was great. She was lovely. Oh, that's so fun. Have you ever written a fan letter or email? I did. So I wrote a fan letter to Diane Keaton. Oh, what a good person to write a fan letter to. I had um, a crush on her. And matter of fact, I still to this day, strangely, have dreams that she insists that I am her boyfriend. And I have to figure out how to be her boyfriend, how to have sex with her. It's like a very leftover childhood thing. It's a Nancy Myers movie. It is. I know. I have to do it. I have to. And um, she went to the neighborhood playhouse too. Okay. And she was good friends with the teacher there, uh, Rich, uh, Richard Pinter. No, no connection to Harold Pinter. And, um, and I kept saying to Richard, I said, Richard, will you please give this letter to Diane? Will you please give this to her? And he was like, No, leave me alone. Don't. You know. And I was pretty friendly with him. And then he called me, and he said, Listen to this. And he played me two messages in a row on his answering machine. And one was from Diane Keaton, and it said. Hi, you know, hi, Richard. It's Diane. Don't be a stranger. Call me. You know, she's being really nice. And and uh, and then the next message was from me saying, "Please give, please. I'm asking you one more time. Give this to Diane." So he said, he "said because those two messages in a row were on the machine, I will bring her the letter." And he did. And then about six weeks later, I saw the two of them in a restaurant at Yellow Fingers near Bloomingdale's on Third Avenue, and they were having lunch. And I saw them, and he saw me, and. And he saw that I saw what was going on, and he gave me a look like, don't you come don't in here. Well, I went right in. Yes. And I went right to the table, and she stood up, and uh, she said, hi, I'm Diane. And she, you know, and, and I got to meet her. It was great. And then I, and right. then I ran into her a bunch of times after that. But I was young, and I was in love with her. I really was. Yeah. Yeah. You got to yeah. take a chance. You got to go yeah. for it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. How can people learn more about your book? Oh, okay. That's easy. Um, you go to www.doncummings.net, D-O-N-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S.net, and uh, all the advanced praise and the New York Times article, right. and it was all there, and and um, and then all the bu- ways you can buy the book are there. Yeah. And, um, and you know, try, I mean, we all know that we can all buy from Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and, and if you need, to, fantastic, I would love that, and review the book on Amazon, but... Also, you know, Skylight Books, who hosted my event, like, you can order the book from Skylight. As a matter of fact, little known fact. And they'll can, ship it to you? They'll ship it to you. You can order a book from almost any independent bookstore, and they will get it for you. Now, granted, yes, it's more expensive, but okay. But you're so, shipping these... Because yeah. I was in the, the store last night. I was so happy it existed, mm-hmm. that it was hanging in there. It's great. And the event last night was amazing. Uh. It, it, you were very loved. I could tell by all the people that were there okay. and how many people came. How did it feel? Yeah, I felt loved. I mean, I mean, I was, I, get, I was nervous, like at seven thirty, right. that you know, like not everyone was there. But it was anyone. standing room only. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was packed. It was great. I, I was pleased. I mean, I was just. Well, I mean, I had to read, so I had to sort right. of focus. And I love know? the way you read it too. You oh, should find a way to do that more or audio or something. I, I just, I, I, I was honestly, I felt so grateful. Yeah, I felt like. Uh, 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 euphoria. I think that's the word. Euphoria. Because it was all working. It all worked out. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm a bit of a, like, you know, make sure everything works out kind of guy. And it did right. work out. And and I was so pleased that, that there were all these smiling faces. And I, yeah. And, like, there, was, there were a few people there I'd never met before. 
um, which is wonderful, you know, yeah. and that there are new faces. But there are a lot of faces of people that I knew. I mean, this is my right. hometown now, you know, of course. I've been a long time. And there's just a lot of people from all my different projects and different parts of life, and they were there. And it was, it was, it felt so warm. Right. And nice. And I was, I just felt grateful. I, and, and because, you know, LA, you know how LA is. Like, people also are like, the much they love you, it's like, oh, I'd rather die than drive across town, or I'd right. rather not. It's Friday, I'm tired, I don't right. want to be bothered. And, like, people came. And I was so thrilled. I really was. Yeah. Good. Well, it was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, final question. Yeah. You know, every cloud, cloud, they say, has a silver lining, maybe. Mm-hmm. So this adventure with Peronis was certainly a cloud. Mm-hmm. Was there something good that came out of it? Apart from this book, maybe? Yeah. In terms um, of maybe how you look at the world or something? Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, and I don't know if this would have happened with age anyway, but I'm, I'm less body obsessed. I'm less, I'm le- I less try to... I understand that I'm not my body. And I'm right. not religious, but I understand, I, I says like, like, this is a miracle that we're living. Like, however you want to do it. You want to be a scientist and go, you know, these atoms came together and by chance we're here. Or you want to say right. some God put us here, whatever. I mean, and I, and, I, and, I, and I definitely more toward the random thing that happened by mistake. But even the fact that this can randomly happen by mistake is a miracle. Right. <laughs> so I totally understand religious people because it's a miracle. Um, so I, I'm, I'm feeling more like living and understanding that every moment's kind of a miracle and that I don't need to use my body. Like, you know, so like you say, go to Chevy's, go to, you know, I don't, it doesn't have to be a, a physical thing for me to feel great about living. It's like this, I, I'm less attached to my body and yeah. I, I think that's good, you know, um, I think it's it's good to not be super attached to really anything, but I think the body, which will change on you drastically over time. In my case, I have Peyronie's disease, um, but everyone has their thing, right? And 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 you you and just like I said, you know, like oh, go have bad sex and laugh about it. And at some point, and my parents do this too about laughing about stuff. So like at some point, as your body is just like having its troubles, you you gotta you gotta like use humor and. To, to to distance yourself from it, but in so doing, accepting it. You end up accepting it. And I think that's kind of cool. You know, I, th- I think it's cool for me also to learn that, like, you know, I'm obviously imperfect, but now I, I really know I am imperfect. <laughs> I mean, like, it's like absolutely stamp of... The jury's in. jury's not out anymore. The stamp of imperfection <laughs> is on me forever. Right. And I accept and it's, it. In a way, it's a relief. In, in a, a way. way, it's a relief because I cannot be... I, I cannot be, I can't be, you know, perfect. Right. Because I'm simply not. And right. I never will be. And I think when I was younger, I, I thought that I had a, I thought I had the chance. I thought I had the, I had this crazy thought that I could be. You had the goods. Yeah. It was, it was ridiculous. Because no one does. Yeah. Not one person. Yeah. Because yeah. if you do have that thought and you're not, that bugs you. You, you kind of, it eats at you, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like a perfectionist personality yeah. problem. Yeah. Of course. It's like, yeah. Good, good, goodbye, perfectionism. Not important. Yeah. So. I love it. Yeah. All right. Thank you for talking and doing the podcast. Thank you for having me. Congrats on the book. It's so good. It's so well written. It's so interesting and personal, and it brings stuff up, obviously, Mm -hmm. as we discussed. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's going to help people, too, that have this, uh, that are are dealing with it. Have you heard from any people yet? You had the New York Times piece come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a bunch of people have read the book. I mean... Have you heard from people that have Peronis? Oh, tons. 
Yeah. Oh, I get pulled over at parties all the time. You know, it affects 5% of the young population, the yeah. male population. So over, um, that's already been happening, even though the books oh, just Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and anyone who's hearing this, I, I have on the Facebook, I have something called PD, Peroni's Disease Support. You can find the group on Facebook. It's a private group, so you won't be. But um, I talk to people there. But also, like, I've had, in New York, four women come up to me and say, my boyfriend or husband has this. I, guys here in L.A. are coming to me. I have it. I know three guys right here in L.A. who are in my circle who have it. Yeah. It's just so common. And it's like, I really... And I've never really heard about it. Yeah, no, because guys yeah. don't want to talk about their dicks. Yeah. They don't want to talk about them, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's like, especially if their dick is... Well, they want, I guess they will like to talk about their dick if it's all perfect. But yeah. even that's kind of rude. Like, no one wants to hear about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, so yeah, no, I'm trying to help. And my original intention was to, with the original 40-page thing I wanted to write, right. to help people because I figured I was the guy because I'm not squeamish, you know? So I figured, let me be the guy who helps people because... And you're good at telling stories and you're good at expressing yourself. Well, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Well, congrats again. Okay. Okay, thanks. Bye! Bye. Thanks again to Don Cummings. Go check out his book, Bent But Not Broken. It's terrific. All right, so this happened. Um, my friends Jeffrey Schwartz and Lottie Ferris Knowles, uh, Jeffrey's a director, Lottie's a producer, they are making a documentary about the movie Showgirls. It's called Goddess, The Fall and Rise of Showgirls, uh, and they just launched their Kickstarter campaign to raise money to finish the movie, and it's going now. So if you're a fan of Showgirls, or if you're a fan of good documentaries, go to Kickstarter and just search for Goddess and throw them a little money because this movie is going to be incredible. I uh, went to the launch party for it on Tuesday. It was at Lottie's place. And they showed a lot of the footage that they've already gotten for the documentary. They have great interviews with Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus, who wrote the movie. Um, some of the cast are interviewed. And it's just going to be great. And, um, I sat for an interview for it. Um, I don't know how much I'll be in the movie, but at the time showgirls was coming out, I was doing a lot of magazine writing and I had interviewed Elizabeth Berkeley for detour magazine. And a few weeks before the story was supposed to come out, I'd already turned it in. They, somebody dropped out for the cover. So they didn't know who was going to be on the cover and they wanted to see if Elizabeth Berkeley would be a fitting cover person. So me and the editors went to, I think it was like Sony over in uh, Santa Monica to watch the movie. And we watched Showgirls. And they were like, afterwards, they were like, so do you think she's cover material? And I'm like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. But I did think it was campy. And I did laugh at a lot of places that I wasn't supposed to. So I kind of got that it was... um, um campy and but it was also riveting in a way and I kind of wrote that in my in my piece that I I think I threaded that needle of like celebrating the movie but also saying you know there's some unintentional laughs here but um and then of course the movie came out and Elizabeth Berkeley was sort of the scapegoat for the failure of it but then it went on to become a cult classic so um Showgirls is very close to my heart so on Tuesday afternoon before the big launch party over at uh, Lottie's house. I go through all my old cassettes from my magazine interviewing days, and I'm talk- I'm talking hundreds of cassettes because I want to give um, Jeffrey my Elizabeth Berkeley cassettes and Gina Gershon and Paul Verhoeven, all from right around that time. 
because so far he hasn't gotten Elizabeth or Gina to be interviewed for the movie. He's still working on it. I hopefully they'll come through. But um, I went through all these cassettes and I found the tapes and gave them to him, and he was so happy. Um, I don't know if they'll end up in there, um, but it'll be interesting to see what they all said because at the time I interviewed them, they all thought, you know, it was going to be the next Basic Instinct. So. Anyway, you you got to go uh, go on Kickstarter, search for Goddess, and uh, kick in a little if you're a fan of the movie, and it's going to be great. I could tell they were they had it playing in the background of the party, and I you always get sucked into it. And I remember at the time thinking the worldview was a little over the top and a little sinister. Um, you know, Joe Esther House, everyone was gross, and it must be nice having not having anyone come on you and just mean, awful people doing awful things. And I thought it was a little, I don't know, it didn't reflect the world as I saw it. And I was looking at it the other night and thinking, oh no, that's the way the world is. That's the way the Trump era feels. Like everybody is as awful as the awful people in Showgirls. Everybody's out for themselves. Everybody's greedy. Um, so the world caught up to Showgirls is my point. Um, but I'm really excited about this movie. I was so high from just the clips that they shown because I think they get the humor of it, the camp of it, the uh, you know embarrassing bad moviness of it. But they also sort of get it what was under it and what they were trying to achieve. And Jeffrey's such a good filmmaker that I think this movie's going to have it all. And um, so I can't wait to see it. There's a reason to go on living right there. There's a Showgirls documentary coming out. All right, that's it for this week. This was a long episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.